I want to encourage you to continue to remember, um, continue to remember our brothers and, and sisters, the church throughout the world as they uh, as they uh, stand boldly and stand faithfully for the name of Christ and to and to consider if that's not something you feel like if you feel like, wow, I don't think I could do that um, to really think about. The Jesus that um, the Jesus that we have placed our faith in, because it's the same God. Um, and I would encourage you to, to really uh, prayerfully think about you know, what is uh, what is. Yeah, what is this life that Christ has called us to? And, and towards that end, I want to look into his word and continue to encourage us to see uh, him, to see him in, in all of his splendor, in all of his uh, worth and glory. Uh, in in our world, I think when you hear the word uh, hear the word king, a lot of different things may come to mind. It carries a lot of different connotations. When I think of king, uh, probably the first thing I, I asked Olivia, "What do you think of when you think of king?" and and she talked about how in the movie Titanic, uh, Jack Dawson once said, "I'm the king of the world," or something like that. And that's what she thought about. When I thought about King, the first thing I thought about was a basketball player named LeBron James, a guy they call King James. And I thought about how, um, why do they call him King James? Obviously, because it's it, it it's nice in in terms of the actual King James, the one who wrote the King James Bible or translated that. Um, it's great that he's that. But they also call him King James because they believe that he's the best basketball player in the world. And whether you like it or not, whether you like him or not, it's very difficult to argue. Because throughout the world, most people would consider LeBron James to be the best basketball player out there. So they call him King James. That's what his name is. And it's interesting because you would think that uh, if it's a king, that he would demand everybody's allegiance. But you remember a few years back in 2009 when uh, LeBron decided to move his palace from (laughs) Cleveland to Miami, uh, how Everyone in the world who didn't live in Miami all of a sudden hated the king. No longer pledged their allegiance to him. There is a company called Fathead. They make these Fathead stickers, and they're pretty much life-size stickers that you throw on the wall. And his Fathead was selling for $99.99. But when he made the decision to take his talents to South Beach in Miami, the price of his Fathead went from $99.99 to $17.41 in honor of the year of the birth of famous trader Benedict Arnold. People were burning his jersey in the streets of Cleveland. Right? Their once and future, they didn't know, their once and future king all of a sudden was being vilified and demonized as the greatest villain that the city had ever known. And then when he came back to Cleveland, they welcomed him back with open arms. I think about that kind of a king and how people can be fickle when it comes to their allegiance and their honor and their love and their devotion to a king. And then I thought about when I grew up, I used to play, play chess. And obviously the most important uh, uh, piece in the game is the king. Because if the king is no longer able to move, then the game is over. But when you actually think about the pieces on the chessboard, the king is the most limited in what, well, outside of the pawns, the king is the most limited in what he can do. He's really not much more than a figurehead. It's the queen who can do all of the crazy things. The king can only move one space in in different directions, but the queen can go clear to the other side of the board in one move. And I thought, wow, what an impotent king. He's really just a figurehead. It's the queen that makes all the decisions. And he seemed to me to be just kind of an old, senile kind of a king. There's a lot of different things that come to mind when you think of a king. And there, you think of Burger King, you think of the Lion King, you think of the Scorpion King, all kinds of different views of a king. So for as many different kings, there are that many different viewpoints as to what the nature of a king is. Today, I want to look into one of the many passages that talk about Jesus as the king. And then to ask this question, what kind of a king is he? Is he like LeBron? Is he like the Lion King? Is he like the chess piece? What kind of a king is Jesus? And then for us to respond accordingly. Let's look at John chapter 6, famous passage. This is in fact a miracle, again, a miracle of Jesus, but it is the only one that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Okay, The only one that's recorded in all four gospel accounts and the only one in which an explanation is given comes in this gospel that we're going to look at. Okay, John chapter 6 verses 1 through 15. This is God's word. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far uh, far shore 
of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is God's word. A very, uh, a very popular passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's written about in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and again here in John. And they're all different accounts. John is the only one that talks about a little boy who gave the five loaves and the, the, the pieces of bread. There's also a different feeding where Jesus feeds 4,000 people recorded in, in other Gospels. There's a lot of times where Jesus is feeding multitudes with just a little bit of resources. Now, um, it, it says that after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. So again, it's a similar context to what we were talking about last week. Jesus and his disciples are very busy. They're meeting the demands and the needs of people. They're teaching, they're preaching, they're doing all kinds of miraculous signs. And Jesus is now at the point where a great crowd of people are following him. Why? Verse 2, because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And so because crowds of people are coming, Jesus needs to to get away for a while. We also read in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel that something else is going on here. That just before this, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist has just been beheaded by the king, King Herod. And so a very familiar situation that you have here with the 21 Egyptians, the Coptic, Coptic is the Egypt, the Greek word for Egyptian, the Egyptian Christians who were beheaded, Jesus is facing a very similar thing, except this man is someone who is very close to him. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. And so if you can think about the fact that your cousin has just lost his life because of the things that he was teaching. And so you've got that going on, and not only for Jesus, but for Andrew and for John, who are disciples of John the Baptist, before they became disciples of Jesus, they're reeling and they're grieving as well. And so Jesus and his disciples are going on. They get onto the sea again and they cross the river in order that they would climb up a mountain. It says a mountainside. Literally, it just meant the little grassy area. It says it's Passover time, which means that instead of being in Galilee, the majority of people should be going to Jerusalem in Judea, which is in the south. But they're up in Galilee in the north and crowds of people are following. It's a springtime. And so what that means is that there's a lot of green, lush, beautiful grass for the people the disciples to sit on. And so in this moment of, of weakness, in this moment of weariness, in this moment of tiredness, in this moment of grieving, Jesus gives his disciples the very thing that they need, just some time alone with Jesus. You, you would be surprised, we saw this last week, but how often you see Jesus getting into a boat to get away from the demands of life. You ever feel like life is too busy, like you're too tired? You're constantly running on this treadmill, this rat race, trying to get ahead. And I don't have time for anything. I don't have time for anything. Jesus teaches us that you always got to get a boat ready to get away from the crowds. And maybe that's what some of us need. I think Richard Foster said, noise, hurry, and crowds. These are the curse of our day from keeping us from getting deep spiritually. Noise, 
hurry crowds. Always having our, eye, our, ear, our earbuds in. Always needing to be with other people. Always needing to have the hustle and bustle of activity. To always be busy. And that will always keep us from getting deep with Christ. He always had a boat. And so they get on this boat. And they get to the other side. And he's get, like a good shepherd <coughs> who's leading <coughs> his disciples to green pastures. He's giving them the rest for their soul that they need. And this is what they long for. But after a little bit of doing this, one of them begins to notice that an interruption in the conversation comes in the form of noise. Again, it's a person coming up the hill and then another and then another and then massive crowds of people. It says there's 5,000 men. That's not including women and children. Scholars say probably thousands of people, up to 10,000, 11,000 people are coming up. They walk all the way around the sea, the 10 miles, and they're climbing up on the grassy knoll to meet with Jesus. And the disciples are frustrated because they're tired, they're weary, they're grieving. They just want to be with, they just want to be with Jesus, just them. Kind of like if you have one of those, you know, if you have a famous friend and every time you try and go out to eat, uh, they're always being stopped for an autograph. I don't know if you have anyone like this, but they're always being stopped for an autograph or can you take a picture with me or this is what the disciples' life was like with Jesus. And everywhere they went, somebody was stopping Jesus and as much as he tried to run away, they keep on following him. And so they're getting annoyed. They're getting frustrated. But the other gospels tell us that Jesus looks at the crowds and he has compassion on them. You see, this isn't like a dire situation. It's not like they've been starving. They're not like African children that you used to watch late at night on the infomercials on TV that are saying, give to the Christian Children's Fund. It's not like that. It's not World Vision or something like that where these kids are emaciated and, and you can see their, their bones sticking out. They're not like that. These are normal people. It's just been maybe one or two meals. And yet Jesus is moved with compassion because the little things of life matter to him. And so Jesus looks up and saw a great crowd in verse 5 and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? So as he asks this question, it's clear that what Jesus is setting forth before his disciples is there is an impossible city. This is a, a thousands of people needing to be fed in this situation that is humanly impossible. So what do we see? Two things about the nature of Jesus that shows that he's king. Two things about the nature of Jesus that show us how incredible he is. The first thing is that Jesus can do more with our little than we can do with a lot. Okay? Jesus can do more with our little than we can do with a lot. Okay, uh, wrap your minds around that idea. Jesus can do more with our little than we can do with our lot. And so Jesus brings up this crazy, impossible situation, and he saw a great crowd, and he says, what are we going to do, Philip? The reason he asked Philip is because Philip is kind of from that area. He knows what's going on. He knows the ropes. If there's anyone that knows the lay of the land in that area, it's Philip. And so he's trying to test Philip. He says, Philip, where... Are we going to be, where are we going to get bread for all of these people to feed them? And so Philip, uh, it, it's interesting. Where should we buy bread? And it says in verse 6, he asked this only to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. So Jesus knew that Philip has no answer for these thousands of people. He knows he's going to bring a miracle, but why does he ask him? Why doesn't he just kind of make it rain, <laughs> bread, and fish? And just make it drop in their laps. Or why don't he just say a word? And then stacks of Lunchables are formed and, and people can just pick them up and go. Why don't he do that? Why does he ask Philip? It's kind of, it's like he's playing a game with Philip. Why does he do that? It's for the same reason that uh, the other day, actually Friday, Friday, uh, I came home and, and our daughter Manny was really excited to tell me about her day. And, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, today Mommy showed me how to change Elijah's diaper. And I said, but... Manny, haven't you seen mommy do that many times? And she said, yeah. I said, so what's do, why are you so excited about today? And her eyes lit up and she got this big smile on her face. She said, because today, mommy, let me wipe Elijah's butt. And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. Why is that so important? Why is that so meaningful to her? Because it's one thing to see. It's another thing to be involved in the story. Why? Because when you're involved in it, 
the next time a similar situation arises, you will actually know what to do in that situation. And so Jesus is presenting before Philip this impossible situation. There's no way. Not even a a restaurant today could produce food for 11,000 people on the spot like that. So he's asking, Philip, what are we going to do? And so Philip is incredulous. He's like, you know what? (laughs) There's, There's no restaurant around here. Okay, there's no Panera. There's no bakery. There's nothing around here. And even if there were, even if there were, if, if we worked eight months, worked eight months, we wouldn't even be able to get enough money to buy a bite for everyone. What is he saying? Even if I gave all of my time for eight months, that's a lot. Wouldn't be enough to give everyone a mere bite. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, I can do a whole lot more with your little than you can do with a lot. And so Philip is saying, I don't know. I don't know. What do you do? You're the million-dollar man, and you get faced with a billion-dollar problem. What do you do? Where do you go? It's so funny to me, right? Because Philip looks at Jesus. (laughs) He's looking at Jesus, and he says, eight months' wages. He's He's looking at the very person that just a little while earlier, just a little bit before, took water, turned it into wine. He's looking at that person and saying, there's nothing we can do. You ever say that to God? You know what, God, you can't fix this. And people are telling you, you got to pray. You got to pray. Just go to God. You don't understand my problem. You don't understand my problem. What Jesus is saying is, you don't understand your God. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to get Philip to remove his... And some of you guys know this, man. Some of you guys have faced situations where there's no chance that you would make it through. There's no chance that you would get, get that job or get into that school or get this thing. Or There's no way that this is possible, that you would go on a date with that girl or that guy. But there's no, no way. But you saw God provide miraculously. The reason why he put you through that and caused you to pray and caused you to seek was so that when you face that situation in the future, you would know what to do. See, Jesus is trying to remove Philip's eyes from the impossibility of the situation and then to lift them upwards to see the greatness of God's provision and the ability that God has in his life. To provide something that he never believed were, were possible. What do you do? What do you do? When you've got a situation that seems impossible, it comes back and you get your 24-hour eviction notice, or you've got your irreconcilable differences that your spouse hands across the table and tells you to sign, or whatever those situations might be in your life. Where do you go when those situations seem so impossible? You, you see, that sounds familiar because in Jesus' miracles, that's what he's been saying. That's ultimately what he's saying. In all of these miracle accounts, is where are you going to go? Where are you going to go when you don't stand a snowball's chance in a fire? Where are you going to go? Where do you turn? Where do you go? When Mr. Fix-It Philip doesn't have the answer, where do you go? When you can't solve those problems anymore, don't you think that God pushes us up against problems where our backs are against the wall in order that we could finally let go and, and, and look upwards? But Jesus constantly is doing well, he's always bringing people in these dire situations, in these desperate situations, and placing them there in order that they could lift their gaze upwards and see, God, I need you. And I'm in, in, in need of something that only you can give and only you can provide for me. And so Philip and the disciples are like, you know, we can't do anything. We can't do anything about it. And then verse 8 says, Another of his disciples, Andrew, Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? There comes this little boy, and I mean, it, you have, we have no idea what he's thinking. Five small, right? The, both, both these things, five fish, two pieces of bread, right? Five, I'm sorry, five pieces of bread, five small barley loaves. Barley was the food of the poor. It wasn't the kind of stuff we eat on communion. It's not the kind of stuff you get at, at Publix or, or Subway. This is, is barley, right? cheap food, food of the po' folks. This is what it is. And then you've got two small fish. Basically, it's sardines. 
Okay? And it's not pork, it's not steak, it's, not, it's just two tiny little fish. And he, he's got it. That's what he's supposed to eat for lunch. Mom packed it for him so he could go hear this teacher, Jesus, and, and he's got it. And for some reason, he decides, hey, you know, I hear you guys talking about feeding all these people. And the audacity that he has to say, maybe. You think about that. What, what could possibly go, be going through his mind? You see, the beauty of it is that Jesus takes it. He never rebukes the kid. He never rebukes anyone for that matter for giving too little or having too little and giving it all. In fact, these are the people he praises. A widow, she's got two pennies. She gives it and he didn't say, that's all you got? Because he doesn't look at what we give. He looks at what we withhold. He says, she gave everything. He says, he gave everything. He, this was his, his, his lunch. Maybe he thought, yeah, I may not eat today. There's a bunch of people out here who are hungry, maybe more hungry than me. It's not going to go far, but maybe I could feed one person. Maybe that's what he thought. But here's the, here's the, the power of what Je- what, why he can do more with a little than we can do with a lot. It's because Jesus multiplies what we have and does with it what we didn't think was possible. You see, we, we know mathematics. And if you multiply something, multiply Jesus by whatever, you get a whole lot of stuff. The only thing, the only thing that cannot be multiplied by is zero. You multiply by zero and you get zero. Could it be that the reason why we're not seeing God moving in our lives is because we're giving him zero and saying, multiply this? Could it be the reason why we're not changing? We're not growing. is because we're taking nothing in our hands and saying, Jesus, multiply that. Even the little that we give. Maybe your marriage. Like, you know what? I'm checked out. It's over. It's done. Maybe the reason why we're not seeing the miracles of God is because we're waiting for the other person to give. And we're not giving anything. Because if we give, right, he will multiply that. And he'll take that. He'll use it. He'll change it. He'll multiply it to do far more than we knew was possible. That be the reason why we're not seeing God moving is because we're expecting other people to be the one moving and giving. And we're trying to ask God to multiply what he has by zero. And so there's no change and there's no effectiveness and there's no miracles and there's no impossible situations becoming possible in our lives. Jesus can do a whole lot more with your little than you can do with a lot. I think a lot of times we have this idea that we think if we give, we're not gonna we're, we're gonna lose. If I give the little that I have, I don't have much, but if I give a little, I'm gonna be the one losing out. On Monday I was flying back in town from uh, from Atlanta, and um, in Atlanta it was uh, started kind of freezing rain, uh, hail a little bit. And, um, and for Atlanta, that is pretty much, I mean, that is catastrophic. They're like, oh my gosh, we're going to, I mean, emergency broadcast system was going off and it was like barely raining and it was, it was crazy. It was about 45 minutes from where I was, I was at to the airport and the, the, the driver was taking me and he, first he took me to the wrong terminal, um, to the international terminal. And he's like, oh, this is not where we're supposed to go. My flight's at 8.50. It's about 8 o'clock right now. So, I typed in the address on my phone and recalculated. It's going to get me there about 8.08. Okay, 8.08, 8.50 flight. Okay, for those of you who don't fly, that's not much time. Okay? So I got to the thing. He dropped me off, uh, and I opened the door to get my bag out, and the door was locked. So I'm, like, getting drenched in the rain. I'm like, open the door, open the door. And it takes him, like, 10 seconds before he realizes that the door's not open. He's like, why isn't he taking his bag out? So he unlocks it. I take my bag out. I say bye, and I... I run in. I go to the security thing, and it says security is closed. You got to go to the next one. So I go down to the next one. It's about eight fifteen now. I get to the line for security, and where the lady checks your thing, and she looks at your your ID and your boarding pass. The lady is doing that. There's like maybe twenty people in front of me, and this is the slowest line I've ever been in in my life. Why? Because this lady thinks she's like Chris Rock, and she's telling jokes to every person who gets up there. 
It's like, ah, where are you going? Oh, I've been to that place. That's the most like, oh, no. I'm like, so I get up there. It's 8.30 by the time I get to her. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to miss my flight. 8.50 flight. Okay, there's no time. Doors close, supposed to close like 10 minutes before. Then I, I go around the corner and the security line going through the, the detector is, is just incredible. It's massive. And so I walk back out to, to talk to security, say, listen, my flight leaves, leaves in 20 minutes. Can, I, can you do something about it? But then all these people are coming. So I was like, I don't want to get behind them. So I, I just I started waiting. I started praying. I was like, God, I need to get home. I didn't, I didn't care. I mean, I had places to stay. It would have been fine. But um, I wanted to get home because I wanted to help in the next, in the, the next morning to get the kids to school. And so I was praying, Lord, I need to get home. I was a little bit flustered, but I realized, you know what? There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to relax. And these people are talking, and they're saying, you know, second busiest airport in the nation, and they've only got this one security line open. Everybody's getting angry, and the line is, like, inching along, inching along, inching along. It's, like, 835, and I'm, like, still, like, 15 people away from the thing. And there's this lady who comes, and she, uh, she comes to the security guard who's kind of behind me, and she's like, my flight leaves in a couple minutes. Is there anything that you can do? And he kind of nonchalantly says, you got to ask everybody in front of you for permission if you can cut in front of them. So she's like, okay, that's not going to happen. And so we're sitting there about 15 minutes before my flight leaves. And this other guy comes, uh, he comes running up and he's like, can someone have mercy? Someone have mercy. <laughs> it's exactly what he said. <laughs> Would anyone have mercy on me? Would anyone have mercy? My flight is at 840. This is like uh, five minutes away. My flight is at 8.40. Someone have mercy, please. And he was, he was, I mean, he was desperate. And so they're like, you got to ask all these people in front of you. And this guy in front of me was like, I'm on an 8.50 flight. I'm like, I'm on 8.50 also. And in my mind, I was like, I should have mercy. I feel like, yeah, I should have mercy. His flight is 10 minutes before mine. But I got to make it home for Olivia and the kids. Like, someone have mercy. Someone have mercy. And so someone behind me, had mercy on him. And he's like, oh, please, dear Jesus. Please, dear Jesus, help me. To make. It's, it's like funny because I'm saying this is, should be the same thing that I'm praying. So we get through the line. He's like, anyone else? Anyone else? We're basically like at the conveyor belt. He's like, anyone else? Anyone else? And anyone have mercy? And I looked at him and I, I, I kind of wanted to let him know that my flight is just a little bit after yours. So I said, we're all going to miss our flight. <laughs> and everyone around us started laughing. <laughs> he's like, what time's your flight? I said, 8.50. He's like, oh, okay. And so we get, and we get through the thing and some lady gets stuck because she's got some contraband on her or whatever it is it probably like some lipstick or something and so finally we get there and i just i start taking off atlanta's the worst airport ever it's massive huge and so i i fly down the the escalator and and the 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 tram is there and it just takes off i was like oh i can't wait i don't know how long this next one's going to be so i get on the people mover i jump on that people mover, and i start running and after about like 15 steps I'm like, oh my gosh i'm so tired <laughs> and i saw a sign that said Five-minute walk to the next stop. So I looked at my phone. I was like, I'm not going to make it. So I, I jumped off the tram. And people are uh, not off the tram, off the people where people are laughing. I run back my 15 steps, and I'm like huffing and puffing. And then the next tram opens up, and it gets there, and I get in. And thankfully, I'm in the A gate, which is the first one. The other guy was in E, so he's got to go five stops. So I get off, and I'm like running, and everyone else is running. I don't know why. I think everyone's running because traffic and all that stuff. Everyone got their lace. So we're running. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to pass out. I'm going to pass out. I'm going to pass out. I get to my gate, and there's one lady, just the, t- the ticket lady. And I get there. I say, oh, my gosh, can I still make it? She's like, come on. I say, am I the last one? She's like, no, you're almost. And so I get in, and I slump down in my seat. I'm like, thank you, God, I made it. Oh, my gosh, I made it. And so I called all of them. I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw up. But I made it. And I sat down comfortably in my coach seat. I sat there. I said, thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer. As I calm down, heart rate is coming back down. Because, you know, prayer is dialogue. It's not just a monologue. You don't just talk to God. I felt like God saying, okay, I did it. I did it for you. And then the one thing he said, that if you had let that guy go, you'd have still made it. Didn't you pray that you would make it on time? Right? You're going to make it. You could have just let him go. And I was like, dang. So the whole flight home, not the whole flight, half a minute. Okay, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sinful. I'm so bad. I'm so rotten. I'm so evil. Lord, this is like, I, I hate that I have to be a negative illustration of the sermon point that if I had given, 
I just given a little bit. I only had I only had 15 minutes, but I could have given it. And not only me, but maybe other people could have made it also. You believe that if you give your little to God, that he can do with it a whole lot more than you can do, that I can do, that we can do with a lot? The first thing that we see is that this is what Jesus does. He does a whole lot more with a little, with our little, than we can do with a lot. The second thing that we see here, second thing that we see then, is that Jesus' reign will be defined by a cross before a crown. So Jesus took the loaves, verse 11, gave things, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. Why should nothing be left wasted? Here's why. They gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Why? So that the disciples could each have their own personal doggy bag to go home with. Like 12 disciples, 12 bags, go home saying, you know what? I can trust him. I can give him my little bit. And so they've got their bags of bagels going home. They're really excited. Verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely This is the prophet who's to come into the world. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So they're excited. They're like, oh my gosh, this Jesus, let's put him on our shoulders and make him king. Why? They figured, listen, 11,000 people, 10,000 people could be fed just out of nowhere. Just he starts, he's pulling bread out. He's pulling bread and fish out. Keeps making these fish sandwiches and keeps on distributing them. All these people and there, everyone is eating and they're stuffed. Like, oh my gosh, they're stuffed. They're completely, completely full. And there's leftovers. They say, if he could do that, boy, he can do anything. He can lead us against Rome. He's going to be the one to deliver us. He's going to be our conqueror. Let's make him king. And it says, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why? Isn't that what Jesus came to do? Didn't he come to be the king, to conquer the hearts of the people, to win their affection, to win their trust, to win their allegiance? Isn't that what Jesus came to do? Then why is it when they're ready to crown him king that he disappears and withdraws to a mountain by himself? A few weeks ago, I was able to uh, take Manny and Elijah to their first ever, actually it was Elijah's first ever basketball game. It was the Orlando Magic versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. I was excited to show them that the king, LeBron James, was playing. I don't care much for him. He's not my favorite player, but he's a great, great basketball player. And I wanted them to be inspired to see, look at how good he is. I was, I think, more excited than they were. In fact, so excited that (laughs) they were bored to death by halftime. They're like, can we go? So I was like, oh, but the game is just starting to get good. And my, my, I had gone with my parents. Their grandparents were there. And so I said, do you guys want to go to Stuff's Castle? Stuff is the magic dragon, the mascot of the Orlando Magic. And he has this kid's play area in the Ozone, which is called Stuff's Castle. So I said, do you guys want to go to Stuff's Castle? And Manny was like, castle? Yeah. And Elijah said, castle? Yeah. They were both so excited. Manny a little bit more than Elijah, Elijah following the excitement of his sister. So we went and uh, walked out, and I asked the usher, can you tell me where Stuff's Castle is? you got to go upstairs and go to this place. And so we're walking there, and Manny is like, has, she's just like completely dumbfounded that there's a castle in a basketball arena. She's like, Daddy, what color is the castle? What kind of castle is it? Is there a princess there? Is there is a dragon going to be? She's asking all these questions. So when we got to the castle, she was a little bit disappointed because it didn't look much like a castle. It was just like a giant playground. But she likes playgrounds just as much. So she was pretty excited about it. And whatever she did, Elijah wanted to do. So she's running in, and they have like this uh, suspension bridge. You run across, and then there's a slide, and all these basketball hoops of different heights and soft balls that you can shoot and you can throw and you can run around and, and jump around and balls and cool stuff. Manny's really excited. Elijah's really excited. They're playing. And every now and then, Elijah's looking to make sure that we're still there. And, and then he plays with his sister. And Manny's just, she's lost in her own world. After about 15 minutes, Elijah gets tired. And he says, Daddy, hold me. So I'm holding him. 
while Mandy keeps on playing. And every now and then she'll peek her head and she'll wave. And it'd be, it was a lot of fun. For about half an hour, Manny was playing. And then I said, okay, Manny, five more minutes. Five minutes and then it's time to go. So she said, okay. And she's running around and she's doing her last thing. And she comes out and she's down the slide. And I'm like, all right, let's go. We're going to go now. And Elijah said, where? The castle? And I said, no, this is the castle. He looked a little confused. Then he looked perplexed. And then he looked very disappointed before finally becoming angry. He said, this is not the castle. And I said, no, Elijah, this is Stuff's castle. And then with just like forcefulness, he said this, this, he said, this is not the castle. (laughs) He had in his mind from watching all of these frozen uh, DVDs that a castle is going to look a certain way. It's going to be a certain way. It's going to be a certain height. and, And that was not a castle. This is not a castle. I said, Elijah, this is the castle. Let's ask the man. So I said, come here. And I held Elijah. I said, excuse me, sir, is this Stuff's castle? And he said, yes, this is Stuff's castle. And Elijah said, no, no, no. (laughs) He was very upset because he had in his mind the kind of castle that he was envisioning and the kind of castle that he actually encountered was far different. And the gap between expectation and reality is going to lead us to all kinds of problems if we have the wrong expectation of what a castle ought to look like. And so what Jesus is trying to show his people here is you've got the wrong expectation of the kind of king that I came to be. You have this picture in mind of a king that's going to overthrow Rome. I'm going to do all of these things, but he says, that's not the kind of king that I came to be. You want to understand the kind of king that I came to be, then you've got to realize that I'm going to be a king on my terms and not on yours. He says, verse 2, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed in the city. Why are they following him as king? Because they saw all that he could do for people and they thought he could do that for me as well. Verse 26, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He's saying, that's not the kind of king that I came to be. The reason why you want to follow me, the reason why you want to make me king is because you think I'm going to give you all of this stuff. And while that might be true, that's not the kind of king that I came to be, one who just gives you the stuff that you want. Let me ask you, why do you want to make Jesus your king? Why did you choose to follow after Jesus? Because you think you have a better chance at getting married if you do? Because you think you have a better chance of getting into a good college if you follow him and you seek to obey him and seek to live according to his word? Is that why you follow Jesus? Is it because I need someone to answer my prayers? Whatever prayers go up, I need answers to come down. I know that Jesus is the one to do that. Is that why you follow Jesus? Or because he gives you a peace that you never knew was possible? Is that why you follow him? Which is okay, but it's, it, it is a very truncated view of the kingship of Christ. Because if that's the only reason why you follow Jesus and you're not going to follow him to the shores of Libya and lay down your life if you think it's only about what he's going to give to you. See, Jesus is saying it's easy to follow Jesus. It's easy to make me king amongst the crowds when I can give you something. But the very same crowds that said crown him today were the crowds that would say just a few days, uh, a couple years later, crucify him. Because at that point, it was no longer that he could give them something that they thought he could give to them. What good they thought is a king who's hanging cursed on a cross. Is that the kind of king that you follow? You see, I think a lot of us would rather follow a Jesus of a crown because if the king has a crown, then his kingdom subjects will also wear a crown. But Jesus is saying, that's not the symbol. That's not what's going to define me and my kingship. It's not about a crown first. It's a cross first. And he's saying this is a hard teaching so much that point in verse 60 on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of his disciples no longer wanted to follow him when they realized that the road that Jesus was taking would not lead them all to a kingdom on this earth, but it would lead them to a kingdom defined by a cross. 
If you're following Jesus as your king, then you better be sure that the one you're following is not a king that you've made in your own image, but it's the king that Jesus intended himself to be. If Jesus is king, that means it's not just he's king when it's comfortable or it's convenient. It means he's not just king on Sunday mornings. It means he's king over all of your life. He's not just king when you're at your house church meeting, but he's king when you're not at your house church meeting, even with your friends who go to church. It means he's not just king on Saturday nights. He's king from Monday through Saturday and Sunday as well. He's king over all of our lives. He's not just king when you say, these are the things I want to give up for detox and you're king over this area of my life. What are the things that if Jesus were to write and fill out your detox form that he would say you ought to give up? What are the things that he would say you ought to give up? That's what it means to follow him as king. Not to give up the things that are second and third and fourth on your list, but the first thing on your list. The first thing on your list, that thing, that thing, that place you go, that thing you do, that relationship that you hold, those secrets that you keep. These are the things that if Jesus were to say, why don't you give that to me? You'd say, Jesus, not that everything else, but not that. What are those things in your life? Because if you're not willing to give those things up to Jesus, then he's not really king. And if he's not king of all, then he's not king at all. That's what Jesus is coming to say. That's what he's coming to say. There's a lot of talk these days about radical religion, about how uh, ISIS is radical in their Islamic understanding. They're not really radical. They're not really radical. Basically what they are is they're taking their holy book and they're understanding it and they're living it out. That's normal Islam. That's normal Islam. Islam is a violent religion that says you need to do away with those who don't follow you. They're infidels. That is normal Islam and the people who think that they're being radical are the ones who haven't read the book. The exact same thing is true with Christianity. The people we think are radical Christians are only radical to you and me because we don't know what normal Christianity is. When Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What he's saying is you got to be ready. If, you, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross, meaning you're ready to die at any moment. That's not radical. That's normal Christianity. That's normal Christianity. The reason we think it's radical is because we haven't read the kind of king that Jesus came to be. Think this is what it means to follow me. Not some middle to upper class Western sit on our first class seats and follow Jesus until that plane uh, takes us into heaven. That's not Christianity. Sorry, that's not the Christianity of the Bible. The reason why the cost is high is because the grace was infinitely greater. Jesus said, here's the lesson of the bread. Just as it was broken and distributed so that you might be satisfied, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Anyone comes to me, they must eat of my body, broken for you. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am the Passover lamb, the pure, perfect, spotless lamb that was slain for you. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Christianity, if you want to be a wearer of the crown in heaven, you need to be a bearer of the cross on earth. Carry the cross. Say, Jesus, wherever you go, I will follow you. Wherever you lead me, I will go. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the Christianity of the Bible. I think Francis Chan says, you know, a lot of people are going to get and stand before Jesus in, in heaven and, and he'll say, why should I let you in? And, they, and they're going to say, because I was a Christian. And Jesus will look at them and say, that's not what I meant. What does Jesus mean? It means that you and I will be marked by a cross before we'll be marked with a crown. Yesterday, at our morning prayer uh, meeting, we sang this song, um, The Old Rugged Cross. And one of the verses of the song says, To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. 
till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. And as we're singing that song, I couldn't help but get an image. These 21 brothers dressed in orange, kneeling on the beaches of the Mediterranean in Libya. And to think that that was a song that they sang. I don't know what they sang. It says that they were singing praises to Jesus as their lives were ending. Did not deny faith in their Savior, but clung to the old rugged cross. And what was it that these malicious men called these people? Why did they kill them? Why did they they do that? Because they were friends of the cross. These men were poor. Most of them fled or left Egypt, went to Libya looking for a job. Many of them were fishermen. Never wore a crown on this earth. Leaving behind families, leaving behind everything. People might consider them to be like this little boy or like the little offering that he gave. Barley, fish, small, insignificant. And maybe as they were breathing their last, they thought our lives are going to go down. Our lives are going to... No one will ever know who we are. Oblivious. Ignored. And yet the small offering of their lives is being blasted and blared throughout the earth. And instead of believers being afraid and fearing, I believe the church is being strengthened. I believe a new resolve is rising up to say, you know what, you can take our lives, but you can't take the Christ in us. We will cling to the old rugged cross. And there, and there, and there, finally, those who are ignored on this earth, those who are discarded in this earth, those who are forgotten on this earth will exchange their cross for a crown as they're welcomed into glory by the one who went before them to the cross laying down his life for us. This is what it means to follow Christ. And until the day comes where we see Jesus, may we too be friends of the cross. May we not be enemies of it. May we not be ashamed of it. May we not be afraid of it. May we cling to the old rugged cross and there exchange it someday for a crown. Let's pray. Is there a situation in your life that you think is impossible? Would you surrender? and give your lunch in order that others might be fed? Maybe, maybe some of us are here. And others around us, the world around us, the church around us may think that Jesus is king over our lives. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're saying, Jesus, you could take anything but that one thing. Can I remind you what Tim Keller says? The thing that you and I are most defensive about is the thing that's most destructive to your relationship with God. What is that thing in your life? What is that thing in my life? What is that thing in our lives? We surrender to Him. Maybe it's our anger. Maybe it's our addiction. You think it's not that bad. What are you most defensive about? That thing you do on Saturday night. Not that bad. Places you go, the people you hang out with. Not that bad. But Jesus is saying, if I'm to be king of your life, would you give that over to me? Can we do that? Can we surrender to him? He's our king. He loves us. He asks us to surrender those toxic things 
not for our harm, but for our good, for our blessing, for our joy. Surrender to him. Surrender to him for a few moments and I'll pray for us. our Savior. Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give His life as a ransom for many. The shape of our lives should be a posture of sacrifice, service, submission, lowering ourselves in order that others might be advantaged. Blessing others, even at expense to ourselves. Exalting the name of Jesus, even at our expense. So, Father, remind us, remind us, this is the call that you've given to us. You don't just point us to a cross and say, go there. But you've given us everything that we need, everything that we need. Your word, 1 Peter 5.10 says that the God of all grace will support and strengthen us in our suffering, in our challenges, in our hardship. We believe that the only way that these brothers were able to lay down their lives on the shores of Libya is because the God of all grace, sustaining grace, was with them and enabled them to worship you even until the very end. It's the same for us as well. Sustaining grace will guide us, guard us, lead us, and fill us until we see you face to face. So may we be bold and live for you as our King once crucified king our soon to be crowned and coming king and you would be our all in all and that we would joyfully and gladly lay down all that we are to follow you thank you so much we love you because you've loved us first we pray all these things in Jesus name